It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my special guest, Victor Allen Bayona. And I'm here with your regular host, Eli Kurtz. So Eric and I have had wild schedules lately, and we decided to find a co-host for this episode. So uh, Vic, I, I spoke to him, and he was gracious enough to come on the show. So thanks for uh, being here, Vic. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Uh, actually, yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. I am a uh, violence designer. That is to say, a fight choreographer with R&D Choreography. We're a violence design company here in uh, the Chicago theater scene. Uh, I also did a little bit of uh, playtesting with um, uh, Steamscapes Asia, and I'm a Wuxia fan, a role-playing fanatic, and a martial artist, so yeah, thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I uh, The last time we hung out was <laughs> recording that uh, we did Wheel of Time Sword Forms, we did, interpreted yeah. by Hema. Yes, that was a lot of fun. It was, uh, I wanted to take a, you know, uh, make my take on uh, what the sword forms from the Wheel of Time series might be. I found out since that he actually, that is to say the author, uh, Robert Jordan, had actually uh, gotten a lot of the forms or adapted them from uh, Chinese and Japanese sword fighting books that he had. And at at which point I abandoned the project thinking that I would just rehash something that actually had a source. <laughs> sure, yeah. Might as well go ahead and use the, the Eastern sources if that's what he used. Right, right exactly, <laughs> exactly. Cool. But all the same, it was really fun, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to be talking about Wing Chun today, a 1994 movie starring Michelle Yeoh. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the fighting styles of the characters and comparing and contrasting those with their character traits and seeing what we can figure out about how violence tells a story in Wuxia. This is uh, similar to an episode that we recorded a little while ago, and uh, this is sort of the continuation of that episode. So before we jump into that, we do need to say thank you to our Patreon patrons. Um, for those of you who are just joining the show right now, first of all, you should check out either episode one or episode 10 first. They're both great jumping on points. And then second of all, uh, our Patreon, we started up so that we could both kind of build a nest egg for our eventual game design efforts and also to uh, have another opportunity to interact with and give back to the community that supports us eventually. So uh, we're really appreciative of everybody. We'll have information in the show notes about how to get on board if you'd like to do that. But of course, it's totally optional. Podcast will always be free. We're always happy to have you as a listener. Uh, So with no further ado... Rob Babrizato, Todd Crapper, Robert Day, Jason Detman, Lowell Francis, Brian Kurtz, Jeremy Marr, Misdirected Mark Productions, Liam Murray, Sean Nicholson, Jared Rasher, Fraser Ronald, Dave, and PK. Thank you so much for your Patreon support. It is, uh, it's really just a solid thing you guys are doing, and we appreciate it. Cool. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into this movie. Like I said, Wing Chun was uh, made in 1994, or debuted in 1994, uh, directed by Yun Wo Ping, who also did the action choreography, uh, written by Elsa Tang, and starring uh, quite a few folks. So Michelle Yeoh as Yim Wing Chun, Donnie Yen in one of his earlier roles as Lung Pak To, Kingdom Yuan as Auntie Abacus Fong, Catherine Hung as Charm, Weis Lee as Scholar Wong, Norman Chu as Flying Chimpanzee, Chu Aifa as Flying Monkey, and Chang Pei Pei making a surprise cameo as Mistress Wu Mei, Wing Chun's master. 
Um, we talked a little bit before the show, and you mentioned you'd seen this movie a while ago. Yeah, uh, probably in college, uh, which was in the late 90s for me. All right. So a very long time it's ago. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I had never seen this movie before. I mean, growing up, I'd seen you know trailers, and uh, mutual kung fu loving friends of mine had uh, told me about it, but I'd never seen it myself. And um, it's pretty good. I... I mentioned to you, you know, I can't decide if it's a problematic product of its time or if it's a feminist triumph product of its time. It's doing a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, my thoughts were that um, uh, for its time, I'd have to uh, sit down and watch some of the other films of the time period and of the period uh, uh, earlier in order to sort of put it in context. Uh, but I want to I wanna lean towards it being a little more progressive for its day. For sure. I think it pushed the envelope and maybe it just didn't age all that well you sure. know, by our... By our standards, 30 years later, it's it's slightly different. But um, yeah, so let's talk about the plot of this movie. It's, uh, first of all, inspired by the actual legend of Yim Wing Chun, who originated the uh, Wing Chun fighting style, and we'll get more into that later. But Yim Wing Chun is known throughout her village as a master warrior. Uh, The countryside around her village is plagued with bandits, but her reputation usually keeps them away. Because of this reputation... A rich man named Scholar Wong shows up in town. He wants to protect his assets from the bandits. And he's going to do this by proposing marriage with Wing Chun so that she can protect him and his assets. (laughs) Uh, He's uh, killing two birds with one stone. So it's during a market day and a beautiful woman named Charm shows up on a boat to beg for medicine for her deathly ill husband. The villagers are not willing to help. And uh, then they're especially willing, unwilling to help when bandits show up and start to covet Charm. Uh, the villagers keep ignoring her, but Wing Chun intercedes and drives the bandits off with a blistering display of her fighting prowess. Uh, the two bandit leaders, who are Flying Monkey and Flying Chimpanzee, swear revenge. And I wasn't totally clear. I know they called themselves brothers, but that's kind of, you know, like a a fraternity kind of thing. Were they actual blood relatives? Did you pick up on that at all? I feel like they're probably more like uh, brothers within the structure of the gang. Yeah. Um, A flying monkey refers to flying chimpanzee as big brother, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of like a senpai, I guess, in in an anime context. (laughs) It's my guess anyway. Sure. Um, so back in the village, uh, Wing Chun, her aunt, Abacus Fong, who's also known as Skunky because of her breath, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a running gag, um, and Charm each deal with the misogyny of the village in different ways. Uh, Wing Chun and auntie save Charm from selling herself to pay for her now dead husband's funeral. Wing Chun playfully defeats a male prize fighter in her tofu shop. That was one of my favorite fights in the movie. It was a great fight. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> um, it's the first chance we really see how incredibly smug she is. <laughs> and I thought it was really cool how she set the terms for the fight. Uh-huh. Um, the condition, She set the success conditions, which was to basically split this platter of tofu, uh, which she protected with her kung fu. Mm-hmm. And it was... That was great. (laughs) Yeah, it was good stuff. So after that, Auntie gives Charm a job in her tofu shop, and the ulterior motive there is to use her beauty to drive business to the store. Um, And then eventually, later on as a plot point, Auntie kind of seduces Scholar Wong and and steals him away from Wing Chun. And of course, Wing Chun isn't at all upset about that. (laughs) Um, Because her childhood sweetheart, a guy by the name of Lung Pak To shows up after six years of kung fu training somewhere else, and he is looking for his uh, childhood sweetheart, Wing Chun. But he goes to the tofu shop, and Charm is at the door there, and he and she's wearing Wing Chun's clothes, 
So he mistakes Charm for Wing Chun and falls in love with her instead. And uh, Wing Chun he mistakes for a man because Wing Chun got her own kung fu training and is now preferring to walk around in men's clothing and is often confused for a man until somebody spends a lot of time around her and kind of gets to know the person behind the clothing. Wing Chun is a little distraught about this and that night Flying Monkey shows up at the tofu shop and tries to kidnap Charm. Uh, Pak To, who was kind of a peeping Tom on the rooftop, (laughs) (laughs) he sees this going on and he flies to uh, Charm's aid. He fights Flying Monkey, but he clearly isn't quite the better fighter. They're close, but not quite. Um, And then Wing Chun, Auntie, and Charm, after Flying Monkey escapes, uh, are sort of in the backyard. They're washing their feet in these three buckets and they, they bicker and then they bond over the problems of living in the patriarchy of this village. After that, Wing Chun decides that she's going to challenge Flying Monkey, so she leaves town for a little bit. She defeats him and (laughs) preposterously (laughs) burns off his nuts. (laughs) Uh, And then when she gets back to the village, she has a run-in with Pak To. Uh, Basically, she decides that she doesn't want him to be kind of falling all over charm. And uh, it drives him off. And she's worried that he's gone forever. Uh, at which point, Flying Monkey's brother and co-leader, Flying Chimpanzee, hears he's been beaten by a woman and demands revenge. Uh, the bandits swarm the village. Wing Chun fails to stop Flying Chimp from stealing charm because Wing Chun is not quite as good as Flying Chimp. And then Flying Chimp gives her an ultimatum. Because even though she's not as good, he was still impressed. And so he says, Wing Chun must fight him the next day if she wants charm to go free. And, uh... They escape, and Pakto tries to prevent the bandits' escape, but then Flying Chimp shows up and soundly beats uh, Pakto because he's not quite as good as Wing Chun. So on their way to confront the bandits, Wing Chun and Pakto bear their hearts to each other. Uh, the last bit of pretense about is she a woman or is she a man is swept away. Wing Chun tries to convince Pakto to stick with Charm because she's young and beautiful. Pakto isn't into it. He reveals that like he, yeah, Charm is pretty, but there were some red flags and, and <laughs> what he wants is his childhood sweetheart. And the red flags were that he didn't think Charm was necessarily that person. So he's glad to find out that Wing Chun is still around and he wants her. And then it, the movie cuts to Charm showing up at the bandit camp and there's this really uncomfortable scene that borders on sexual assault where charm is kind of married to flying monkey and then they they sort of consummate the marriage by rolling on a bed and seeing how many bananas are smashed (laughs) it's really weird but the short of it is that charm is not consenting at all during this and um then some of the bandits start to get involved too and then flying chimp interrupts them and beats everybody up and reminds them who's the boss and of the stakes wing chun has to fight flying chimp to get uh, charm back and she shouldn't be harmed until that point until that's decided wing chun does show up and she fights flying chimp and there's only one clear rule that's stated in this fight but there's definitely a like an an unspoken rule too the first one is that he has this massive majestic spear that takes four <laughs> people to lift and he throws it into a wall and he tells wing chun that if she can pull it out in three tugs or less then Charm is hers, and and they can go off on their own. The second rule seems to be that they have to fight on the spear, and the floor is basically lava. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a great fight. I love it. It is. It it had a lot of really wonderful moments in it. And Wing Chun ends up winning. Uh, She does pull the spear from the wall, even though she doesn't, you know, necessarily defeat Flying Chimp. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And uh, Chimp is again impressed, and he gives Charm back to Wing Chun, but he makes another demand. He and Wing Chun will fight again in three days, and if she loses, then she'll marry him. So the stakes, again, are raised in this, uh, in this moment. You know, Wing Chun knows she's not quite as good, so she travels to her mistress's monastery, and she uh, needs to get some advice from her old mistress, who, as I said earlier, is Cheng Pei Pei. We haven't seen her since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and that was fun to see her, you know, 25, uh, I guess at the time it would have been more like 15 years earlier or something, yeah, but yeah. Um, all the same. Yeah, so, so the nun tells her that she needs harmony. Wing Chun <laughs> needs to find some harmony, so she needs to, quote, find a man. <laughs> I'm not sure what it would be like in the uh, in the native Chinese, but on the, the crappy little dub that I found, it was not ideal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, while this is going on back in the village... Auntie and Scholar Wong are brokering their marriage contract, and a nun arrives with a message for Pak To to go and find Wing Chun. Uh, so he heads out, and Wing Chun and Pak To meet up. They get a room together, and it's really awkward. They don't. Wing Chun doesn't want to talk to him, but they're both sitting on this bed and sort of pointedly looking around. He tries to play footsie with her; it doesn't work. Um, and then she realizes when he's frustrated by these mosquitoes, and he's trying to punch these mosquitoes. The, what her mistress meant was that she should get a man to help her fight. But then <laughs> they kind of fight flirt with each other. She demonstrates some really wonderful uh, Wing Chun stance work when he <laughs> tries to get fresh with her knee. And then he tickles her into the bed and the camera pans upward. And so I guess she gets, you know, both worlds there. Uh, both versions of finding a man. And then we go to the final moments. So back at the bandit camp, uh, Wing Chun approaches with Pak to, uh, she's allowed inside the bandit camp and Pak to stays outside. She picks uh, butterfly swords to counter Flying Chimp's majestic spear. And oh man, <laughs> yeah. I loved this fight scene. It was yeah. so good. Oh yeah. Man, she's just blistering throughout the whole thing. And she holds her own against him. She does more than that. Uh, not even Flying Chimp's secret stomach chi power that he used earlier in the movie can stop her this time. Uh, she makes a mockery of him completely. He becomes her lackey. And then, just like that, very similar to the end of uh, 36 Chamber of Shaolin, uh, she can she tells the bandits to clean up their act, and they're just like, yeah, of course we will. Yeah. <laughs> no, no ambiguity about that whatsoever. And then uh, she leaves the bandit camp and sees that outside Pak to has beaten up all the bandits that are out there. Um, I'm sure it was a great fight, but we didn't see a second of it. Yeah. And so Wing Chun and Pak to go back to the village. They get married. Abacus Fong and Scholar Wong get married off screen. And then when Wing Chun and Abacus Fong kind of go on their way, they leave the tofu shop to charm. But they tell her, you know, she has to think about her future. She should try and find a man <laughs> instead of just slaving away at the tofu shop yeah. all the time. So, yeah, like I said, it was a really fun movie. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Master of the Flying Guillotine. I think I saw it a while ago as well. Yeah, it's... It's one of the more comedic movies, I think, both at the time and definitely after the fact, too. Um, it came with the, the guillotine had a cage on it, right? So it would chop people's heads off and trap them. Yeah, basically, it was like a it was like <laughs> yeah. an oversized imperial Chinese uh, hat, yeah, like one of the red ones or whatever, and it had these blades on the inside. Yeah. And you would throw it, and so the hat was sort of a cage. Yeah, and then the blades would cut their head off and bring it back to the guy. Yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of elements in it that were surprisingly entertaining, but there were also a lot of elements in it that were surprisingly 
problematic mm. even for the time i think they should have been sure okay um, treatments of of race and ethnic ethnicity were big problems uh, mm. all throughout but um yeah this movie was like a diet version of that i think there were huh. the misogyny was a little tough for me to deal with sometimes i was like oh, yeah. guys do you have to be oogling over charm all the time yeah but i don't know i don't know if it's because the movie was written by a woman or because of the nuances of the relationships between Wing Chun, Abacus Fong, and Charm. But it seemed like all of the misogyny might have actually been sort of a, a commentary, a scathing commentary right. of the genre's treatment of women so far, you know. I, I would agree because yeah. uh, we see most of the action from the lens of the women anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, these things are portrayed as bad, not good aspects of, of masculinity. Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of impossible for these characters to escape the patriarchy that exists at the time. Yeah. But they're at the very least empowering themselves to make the most of it within that structure. Right. And I think that's pretty valuable, um, especially for 1994 in China. You know, I, I can only imagine what the reaction was at the time. Uh, but we are talking mostly about the fighting styles that we see displayed in the movie and how they exemplify or maybe are exceptions to different characters and their uh, their various character traits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the main character, Yim Wing Chun, uh, really wonderful performance by uh, a young Michelle Yeoh. So how would we define her character traits in this? I, I think of her as extremely self-assured. She is clearly... Uh, an extremely skilled fighter. Uh, she was trained by a Shaolin abbess. She knows what she's capable of, and she knows how good she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she walks with this, with this, com- with the confidence of having earned the skill that she possesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's she's self assured to the point of being pretty playful about it. Yeah, she yep. she's got this kind of coy sort of you know oh well go ahead all you have to do is chop the tofu block in half <laughs> yep it should be easy right for a big prize fighter like you and yeah. then just wipes the floor with this guy yeah um she's also i think pretty reserved you know i mean we see uh lung pak to shows up in town and he's gaga to find wing chun yeah but then he he mistakes the wrong woman for his childhood sweetheart and instead of wing chun being like no 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 it's me she hangs back and she waits and she sees what happens and she observes like, who is this guy? Yeah. And so often, uh, even in the very first fight where Scholar Wong is in this like roadside tavern mm-hmm. and the bandits come up and beat the crap out of him, she jumps out and she sits down in this chair and then Scholar Wong is like, oh no, he's right in front of her. And she uses a stick to kind of make him fight on her behalf. Yeah. <laughs> she pushes him around, you know, yep. she's got this very stoic quality. Yeah. Yeah. So... She knows her skill. She knows her worth. She's a little playful and she's a little stoic. Yeah. And she's playful, um, I think, uh, when when the situation calls for it. When someone has... Like, I wouldn't... I don't think she'd be playful in a in a sort of denigrating way to anybody who didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Like Absolutely. It clearly people who have pushed her buttons or pushed, you know certain boundaries that she's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to mess with you. Yeah. A little they bit. need to be taken down a peg. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a great quality to see in a heroine. I love it. Yeah. Before we talk about her fighting scenes, we should probably go over a brief history of the character Yim Wing Chung, who is a mm-hmm. historical character as far as we're aware. Right. Yes. Um, Pseudo mythical, I think. But yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so we know that the movie is not a far cry from the myth, but uh, do you want to do you want to recount a little bit of the myth for us? Sure. Uh, there are actually a few. I was uh, looking this up a little bit earlier, 
And there are actually a, a few myths. One version of the myth is that uh, Yim Wing Chun uh, was, uh, worked in a tofu shop and uh, a warlord, she caught the eye of a local warlord who desired her in marriage. And uh, the Shaolin abbess, um, Ying Mui, I think, is, uh, is, one of the, is how, it's, uh, how it's written in some of the uh, literature we've seen. But although it's it's pronounced differently or it's written differently for the for the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but her teacher, uh, who is a Shaolin nun, uh, finds her and teaches her this art uh, that uh, the nun had devised. Uh, apparently, from watching, inspired by watching a snake and a crane fighting, mm-hmm. uh, and how the snake defeated the crane despite the fact that it was at an obvious disadvantage, mm-hmm. um, and so she taught the abbess taught wing chun this art uh which wing chun used to fend off the advances of the warlord uh and allowing her to marry her actual uh childhood sweetheart who is again pakto um in the legend as well uh another version of the myth that i've seen is that there was no it did away with the with the shaolin abbess and that uh wing chun and her father uh devised this art uh, but once again, being inspired by a, a fight between a crane and a snake. Mm-hmm. So that at least seems to be a common element between the various versions. Uh, and once again, use that to fend off unwanted advances. Um, and uh, taught that art to her, to Pocto, and that together uh, they spread the, uh, the use and the, the, the practice of, that, of their art. Yeah, um, it's in, it's interesting to note also that Wing Chun, Yim Wing Chun means, uh, I believe at one point I knew it as beautiful springtime. Mm-hmm. Um, another version is uh, spring chant, but it has to do with spring. Yeah, uh, and so it's kind of neat to see this badass uh, martial art, the martial art that was the foundation for Bruce Lee's training, meaning something along the lines of beautiful springtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've also seen uh, translations of eternal spring or that sort yeah. of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so after the myth of Wing Chun uh, happens, the lineage that has been passed down to us is that Wing Chun teaches Lung Pak To, and mm-hmm. the two of them go around, and I think they eventually find an opera uh, mm, company. Okay. And they, or at least in one of the myths, they find mm-hmm. an opera company and impart Wing Chun the style to these five or six uh, opera company members. Okay. And so every branch of the Wing Chun family tree descends from Wing Chun and these and these five or six different uh, practitioners. Yeah. And eventually it goes all the way down to Ip Man and then to Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Lee eventually... Uh, creates Jeet Kune Do largely inspired by Wing Chun and, and other styles that he had observed. Yeah. yeah. Um, we don't get a clear picture of this in Wing Chun, I don't think, but in the movie Ip Man, which we watched for a previous episode two, that showcases the actual practice of Wing Chun a little better, I think. Oh, yeah, much, I think. Yeah, and you can really see the movements, particularly the uh, the, the hand positions, how it's similar to a snake-style kung fu. Yeah. Um, and I believe we, the fighting style is a Southern Chinese martial art. Wing Chun is, is that right? I think so. Okay. I could be wrong. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I know Southern is typically characterized more by rooted stances and mm-hmm. close range fighting. Yeah. Whereas Northern, which I think is probably something that Pak To studied as far as the movie is concerned, mm-hmm. is much more about long reaching kicks and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah in this, in Wing Chun, the the movie, that is to say, uh, the art of Wing Chun seems to be 
sort of mixed with a lot of uh, wushu. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, um, as choreographed by uh, Yuan Moping. Yeah. So uh, also, um, it's interesting to note that uh, Ip Man apparently uh, sort of touted the, the 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 version of the story with uh, the Shaolin nun um, and with uh, teaching Wing Chun, uh, who taught uh, uh, Pak To. Um, as sort of the the version of the myth that I guess he supports, mm-hmm. uh, whereas his son, uh, who took over the um, who took over the art uh, after his passing, after Ip Man's passing, wanted to delve a little more into the history behind it and came to different conclusions, uh, but suggests that possibly one of the reasons why there may be so many different versions of these myths is because the the art was founded uh, when like soon after the temple, the Shaolin temple was sacked. Um, and this was a way of hiding the true source of the art and protecting the the masters um, that taught it by sort of uh, having different versions of the myth that threw off any investigators from, from the actual practitioners. I like it. Yeah. So, I know yeah. at least one of the accounts um, I read a few today, one of them was on Wikipedia. And I think that's the one that mentions during the Qing yeah. dynasty, uh, the Shaolin Temple was suspected of harboring revolutionaries, right? Yeah, and so it was sacked, and and the abbess escaped and eventually imparted yeah the, uh, the art form. Um, so that's pretty cool. And what we should do now is take a look at a few of the fights that Wing Chun is in and see how we can see elements of her character in the fighting styles that she uses. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the very first fights we get is the marketplace fight, where there's this stage set up for the uh, performances that are going on during market day. Yeah. And then the bandits show up uh, trying to get charm, and Wing Chun inter- intercedes. There's a point at which she draws a sword uh, on them, and she starts fighting, I don't know, it's like 10 different guys at yeah. once. It's, it's really cool. And she immediately starts parrying all their blows, but then also smacking them with the flat of the blade. Uh-huh. And it becomes a real trope for her throughout the entire fight. She's constantly like almost hitting them with the with the sharp, and then turning it to the flat and hitting them instead. Yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really good. It's just a bunch of gotcha moments. Yeah, <laughs> you should know. You should be dead by now. You're right. It, it's totally <laughs> that self-assured nature, you know. Yeah. We also have the tofu platter fight, which we've talked about a few times. Uh, the thing that really strikes me with this, and I think it's an exemplification of Wing Chun specifically, the fighting style, mm. is that she's really comfortable in this tight entryway space for yes. the tofu shop. Yeah. Um, the other guy is is floundering to get around this table or to get over it that the, that the tofu block is set up on. Mm-hmm. And every time it seems like he's just in too tight a quarters and he can't quite maneuver like he wants to. Right. Yep. But Wing Chun is totally cool as a cucumber in these moments. Um, to the point where she can even do some kung fu magic with this thing, you know. Yes. She, there's one point where she throws the tofu around her like a boomerang. <laughs> yeah, around her back. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, it was really good stuff. And you know, the guy eventually gets frustrated. He tries to start breaking the table, and she props it up with like a footstool. Yeah, it's just really cool to see how in control she is this entire time. Mm-hmm. We've also got the final fight, which is. One of the better fights in the Kung Fu movies that I've seen. Yeah. It's it's wide-ranging. It goes through a lot of terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it has a little bit of the same constricted nature in it, too. Yeah. Uh, especially when they get inside that building and all of a sudden Flying Chimp's spear doesn't really count for anything. Right, yeah. I love how intelligent a fighter they make Wing Chun in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, how she 
she, you know, she determines that she uh, meets the challenge by the local thug in the tofu platter fight by bringing him into her tofu shop and setting those conditions. So she sets the she stacks the cards in her favor. Uh, and once again, in the final fight, she didn't have the opportunity to really set the uh, the conditions, but she did take advantage of her terrain and drew him into this tight space where his spear would do him no good and her butterfly swords um, would uh, would win the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And we even see, you know, at the very beginning of that fight, she's out in the open and that's where yep. that's where Flying Chimp's spear is at its greatest advantage. Yeah. And she's basically on the defensive the entire time that goes on. But as soon as they get inside, she has the opportunity to box him in mm-hmm. and getting closer where his spear doesn't mean anything and eventually even disarm him. And yeah. at that point, the fight is over. Even yeah. though they go back outside, they're unarmed and, and she's got the the high ground, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, really good stuff from her. Uh, our other sort of our deuteragonist, I guess you could say, is uh, <laughs> Lung Pak To, mm-hmm. uh, young Donnie Yen. And he's just come from studying. They don't say anything more specific than just studying Kung Fu for six years. Yeah. But like I said, I mean, he's got a lot of really long, graceful kicks in this thing, high jumps and that sort of thing. I, mm-hmm. it, it, I perceive Northern influences in that style one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of character traits does Pak To display? He's young. He's eager. Uh, he uh, is a chivalrous person, uh, always sort of coming to the defense of women Mm -hmm. it could be construed perhaps as unnecessary uh but you know he tries he does his best he wants to he wants to help well and to his credit you know i mean there are definitely toxic expressions of that chivalrous attitude absolutely and i don't think pakto has much toxicity in his motivation for that yes i think he he is a helper Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and and case in point you know he never really overshadows wing chun yes he makes a good sidekick uh, yeah, a faithful sidekick, you know, and he doesn't he doesn't rue that fact. Mm-hmm. Like he does not uh, rebel against the fact that she is the she is the hero, and right. he's along for the ride. Right. There's even the moment whenever they are in it's it's not a hotel room, but you know they're in this room that they've they've found. They're sitting on the bed, and she clearly is like, "No, I don't want to talk. I don't want to look at you. Don't touch me. Don't yeah. do anything." And the whole time he he doesn't seem particularly troubled by it. He's kind of looking around and whistling or whatever. <laughs> he kind of inches his foot over to play footsie, but yeah. I don't get the sense that he's like, you know, just really dying to jump her bones or whatever. He's willing right. to respect her her needs and her wishes. Yeah, there's definitely an uh, an innocent quality about him that's really endearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that's tied up in this youthful energy that he's got. Mm-hmm. Uh, the energy doesn't really spill over into negative behavior right it's it's funneled toward fundamentally good ends yeah a couple of fights that he's involved with we've got first the fight with flying monkey after flying monkey shows up and tries to kidnap charm Mm -hmm. Uh, this fight kind of reminded me of the fight in crouching tiger when jen is trying to get away from shulian Mm -hmm. and they're in this it's an empty courtyard in uh, crouching tiger but they do a lot of like running on the walls and rebounding off the walls and stuff. Yeah. Uh, this fight, architecturally, the walls looked really similar to me. Sure. It looked like it could have been the same kind of courtyard. Yeah. There was just a lot more stuff going on in uh, in terms of set dressing for that yeah. fight as well. Um, but we see, you know, Pakto in this moment, he's totally comfortable taking Flying Monkey's long leaping kicks toe to toe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, I think... Even though he kind of loses at the end because of some dirty tricks, he's still a, 
a solid fighter. Yeah, absolutely. And he can, I think, go pound for pound with Flying Monkey until Flying Monkey starts playing these tricks. You yeah, know? which is great. Um, one of the things uh, that sometimes we have to consider when designing fights is uh, not just, of course, telling, you know, advancing the story, but also revealing a lot about the characters. And sometimes uh, what you reveal about one character is really is really revelation about another character. And I think in this case, the fact that Pak To is so good but is also clearly inferior to Wing Chun, only elevates Wing Chun's ability. Right, right. Uh, Something that we've brought up over and over again on the podcast is this idea of scale. Mm. Everybody in these stories has a particular scale. Yeah. And the idea is that if if you're fighting somebody below your scale, there is maybe a 0.5% chance that they'll beat you. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't really matter how many people it is below your scale. If you're fighting one or 20, right. if you're a higher scale, you're probably going to beat them. Yes. Uh, whereas if you're fighting somebody who's a higher scale than you, you have to make major sacrifices to be able to contend with them. Right. And I think in this case, Pakto and Flying Monkey are roughly equal in scale. Yeah, I would agree. Another thing that we've talked about is this idea of scale boosters, you know. In Crouching Tiger, it's the green destiny. It makes mm, whoever mm-hmm. holds it into a superhero. Right. Um, in Five Deadly Venoms, if you've got this, if you've got the right poison, then you can weaken somebody else and take them out. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, in this fight, I think Flying Monkey, using his dirt in the eye trick, mm-hmm. is a scale booster for him. It gives him the advantage long enough for him to actually be able to get away at the very least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to Pak To, uh, another another good fight of his is when the bandits are trying to escape after they successfully kidnap Charm. This mm-hmm. is a couple of fights later. Um, and he fights two guys on horseback at first. He does pretty well. And then Flying Chimp shows up and he's almost immediately uh, trounced. Yeah, yep. Um, in fact, so much so that he passes out afterward. It, right. It, he has to be given what, the number nine magic bean or whatever <laughs> yeah. to, to yep. recover. Yeah. It's like a senzu bean from Dragon Ball or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I noticed about his fighting in this particular scene is a lot of really low rooted stances mm-hmm. and a lot of grasping techniques, not out of place in like an eagle or a tiger style or yeah. something. Yeah. It's very different from his fight with, with Flying Monkey. You can see some similarities in terms of the energy and athleticism on display. But the undertone for this entire fight for me was clearly stop them, control them. Right. Uh, I need to be the point that they can't move past. And I need to yeah. I need to control their movements with my grasping claws and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, that explains that using that tactic instead of his uh, what we've seen before. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and then when he shows up with flying chimp, flying chimp is this guy who's just kind of indomitable, you know, Mm -hmm. he, and it's not necessarily that Lung Pak To is bad. It's just that he can't contend. Yeah. Um, it's clear that he's not the one who's going to be facing off with flying chimp at the end of this thing. Yeah. And it doesn't even take very long. I think what, what happens? It's maybe a few exchanges and then flying chimp knocks him on his ass and and that's it. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much. Uh, one and done kind of fight, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, some really wonderful character moments I think for Pakto in all these fights. Uh, are there any other fights that Pakto participates in? Well, it's funny because uh, Wing Chun brings him along at the very end, uh, presumably because she needs a partner to help her defeat uh, Flying Chimp, mm-hmm. and yet he sort of he ends up basically standing outside, uh, <laughs> waiting for her. <laughs> 
And perhaps he does fight the bandits out there, the guard outside the the gang's sort of fort. But uh, we don't, yeah, we don't see any of that. So it, it's a little interesting. But uh, I think, but I mean, I think it serves the it serves the story of yeah. Let's focus on let's focus on our female hero yeah, and what she can sure. do. And I guess there are a couple of exchanges, brief exchanges, between Pak To and Wing Chun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when he mistakes her for a man and also for a man who is sort of inappropriately in the, in charms, who he believes to be Wing Chun's presence at night. Yeah. Uh, and he's going to teach uh, this man a lesson. Right. Well, and then after, um, after the fight with Pak To and Flying Monkey, too, Wing Chun shows up right after Flying Monkey has left. And mistakes Pak right. for Flying Monkey. That's right. There's, there's that as well. Yeah. yeah. And with both of those, I think I think the demonstration is merely that Wing Chun doesn't have to fight Pak for very long. Both because Pak doesn't really want to fight her. Yeah. Even though he thinks she's a man at the time. I, I don't think he's really determined to lay this guy low. Yeah. I think he just wants to have charm who he thinks is Wing Chun for himself. And Mm -hmm. he wants to kind of demonstrate his, his worthiness. You know, it's not so much like a humiliation thing as it is a proving himself kind of thing. Right. But regardless, Wing Chun is like, nope, 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 nope. And then knocks him down and that's it, you know, uh, clearly outclasses him both times. And, (laughs) and that's kind of an interesting character trait for Pak Cho too. This idea that he, even though he's got this youthful vigor, he's still reserved in his own way. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. He knows the rules of propriety, and he doesn't want to exceed those. Yeah, yeah, because he's, he's a good guy. Yeah, and they, and the story definitely goes to some effort to make sure that he is and stays a good guy throughout the film, which mm-hmm. is nice to see. Absolutely. So after we've got these two good guys, we've got these two bad guys. So first up is Flying Monkey. Yeah. This guy, he <laughs> first of all, he displays some pretty cool monkey stuff uh, throughout. He, yeah. He's got a pretty good grasp of the style, I think, and they and even though I think all these fights are mixed with the wushu that you were talking about, yeah, um, it's still plenty of monkey in this guy's style to be really interesting. Yeah, he strikes some really cool stances and uh, definitely shows some really cool monkey style moves. Mm-hmm. So monkey style is characterized by this kind of mischievous nature. You know? Yeah, yeah. A lot of misdirection, a lot of kind of surprising attacks. That's a sort lot of, of agility and a yeah. lot of a lot of acrobatics. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that he's very hard to hit. And yeah, mischievous is a is a good word. In fact, that trick that he uses to to get away from Pakto, the sort of he kicks up dirt into Pakto's eyes. Classic, <laughs> perfectly classic. right, absolutely. Well, and just before that too, I think the moment where he realizes I really need to be cheating to win this fight. Yeah is uh, Pak To chases him back to the scaffolding. Mm-hmm. And there's a really cool moment where, I guess, Flying Monkey kind of flies back to the scaffolding on his own, and he's hanging off of one of the poles, and he does this cool little monkey stance. Yeah. And then Pak to leaps at him and kicks away the pole, and, and Flying Monkey just jumps up and hangs upside down from a pole, too. Yeah. And this sort of taunting quality is is typical of both monkey style i think and definitely the flying monkey character yes um even in moments where he's not engaged in a fight we see him doing a lot of boasting a lot of uh, although boasting seems like i don't know maybe too much of a 
powerful word for what he's doing. He's he seems very small in character throughout this whole yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, we think we start off thinking that he's the he's the bad guy. Like yeah. the like sort of the head bad guy. Uh before we're introduced to Flying Chimp. But yeah, you're right. He he doesn't he doesn't ever get so threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so overwhelmingly threatening the way Flying Chimp does. Right. Well, and he gets increasingly less and less threatening, too, throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, his final attempt to engage in a fight is right after the final fight between Wing Chun and uh, Flying Chimp. And yeah. he comes up on uh, Wing Chun from behind. She doesn't even <laughs> yeah. look. She just kicks him over her shoulder. Yeah. And that's that. And know? then he's chastised by yeah. his own big bro, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Yeah. He, uh, he's clearly positioned in a certain place in the hierarchy in this, in this gang. Yeah. And he's kind of sniveling about it. Oh, yeah. But like you said, you know, at the beginning, the introduction, oh, he's got a little bit of authority. You know, he does command the respect of a lot of the gangsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a question of, objectively, how much authority does that amount to? Right. <laughs> and the answer yeah. is not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's Flying Monkey. I'm trying to think if there are any other... There's the fight between him and Wing Chun, but mm-hmm. it's on horseback. Yeah. And so we don't get necessarily a display of martial arts. There's a lot of weapon use there, but it's not quite as clear as when you're two fighters on the ground and you're using your whole bodies. Right. Uh, There's a lot of horsemanship that gets mixed into this fight, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, Although, you know, I think the same thing holds true. Uh, Wing Chun concocts a somewhat elaborate trap for him. She sets this entire field on fire so he can't run away. Yeah, yeah. And then she's fighting him with a staff, and he's got—is it one or two of these big axes? Maybe yeah, it's, it's two axes. Yeah, and which is maybe an interesting contrast with the fight between Flying Chimp and Wing Chun at the end. Yeah, when yeah. She's got two butterfly swords, and he's got the one spear. Yeah, but in I, both cases, Wing Chun chooses the better weapon, yeah. or makes <laughs> yeah. the most of her weapon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you know, he—I think he's trying a lot of these same sort of dirty tricks. He's trying to run away through fire to get Wing Chun off his trail. Yeah. But she's too good. She follows him. And then there's a moment where he tries to make the most of his terrain. He leaps at her, and that's exactly when she burns his crotch up. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't want that to happen. <laughs> we all felt badly for Flying Monkey in that moment, but only yeah. a little bit. Only a little. <laughs> only just the tiny He was set bit. up well for us to just, just be a little bit upset. Yeah. Generally a dirtbag. Yeah. <laughs> and then the the final, you know, main antagonist here, Flying Chimp, who's introduced fairly late, but uh, he makes quite an entrance. I mm-hmm. think, uh, are, have you seen Iron Monkey? Yes. A movie that came out around the same time as this? I didn't realize it was about the same time. I thought it was a little bit later. I want to say Iron Monkey is actually 1992. Oh. And this is 94. Okay. okay. Uh, it kind of tells you something about the studios that produced the two movies, too, because... Wing Chun, I think, in a lot of ways, looks about 10 years older than, yeah. than Iron Monkey. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, in Iron Monkey, we have this corrupt fallen monk who shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's kind of a late arrival, too. But immediately, it's just endless machismo and power from that character. Yeah. And I think it's the same sort of thing from Flying Chimpanzee. Just their names. You know, Flying Monkey. Monkey is a smaller word than chimpanzee. It's, yeah. It, you you think about a monkey and you're like, oh, like a little capuchin or something. Yeah. And you think about a chimpanzee and you're like, oh, a woman got her face ripped off by a chimpanzee once. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a different sort of primate. And um, we definitely see that throughout the movie. I think he has maybe the barest glimpses of a sort of monkey style in his fighting, but mm-hmm. it's much more grounded and powerful, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
and just general, he he is really commanding and powerful throughout this entire thing. Yeah. Whereas the bandits are generally willing to go along with what Flying Monkey says because he's in charge. Once Flying Chimp shows up, yeah, <laughs> you better listen to him or he'll just beat you up. That uncomfortable sex assault scene I talked about, he he puts an immediate stop to these guys getting grabby. Yeah. He beats up like three or four of them. <laughs> and then all he has to do is just say, you know, you better remember the stakes of this situation. Right. Nobody touches her until I fight Wing Chun. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's immediately and unquestionably respected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are his character traits. And we've got a couple of, I think, really potent examples of his commanding powerful character uh, mm-hmm. as I exemplified in his fighting style. Yeah. The first one is in the first fight between Wing Chun and Flying Chimp. Mm-hmm. I believe it's at the tofu shop. That's where they destroy her training dummy. Yeah. Yeah, and that was also a moment, you know, this like this is how she perfects her skills and Ch- Flying Chimp comes along and just destroys the whole thing. Yeah. Um and also interesting in that yeah. fight that they use that as both a weapon and an obstacle for a little while. The training right. dummy. Mm-hmm. Really cool stuff going on in that fight. It was one I had totally forgotten about until just then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's a moment where Flying Chimp kind of lets Wing Chun get a shot in on him. Mm-hmm. And she, I think she punches him in the stomach. Yeah. And he just sort of sucks it in. And she's holding her, her hand there. And she's like, oh, I can't pull it out. Yeah. And then he's like, why don't you, why don't you try a... a dose of my stomach cheese yeah. and blasts her back across the tofu courtyard yeah <laughs> really powerful display and that's such a that's such a wuxia trope you know this this magical chi that happens yeah particularly in a weird part of the body one that you wouldn't necessarily expect from from a western perspective one that should be a vulnerability but yeah. is actually a strength absolutely yeah yeah and and i think that's part of it too you know he we talk about the fight where wing chun has to pull the spear out of the wall mm-hmm on the surface, that's really easy. Yeah, uh, That should be a weakness that Flying Chimp has betrayed. But then he's equally capable of fighting on top of the spear. So he's got this sort of surprising quality as well. Yeah, He's really grounded, but I think that is probably one of the better ways to display the fact that he does use a monkey style of Kung Fu. The fact that he can fight on this mm-hmm. this, this uh, spear yeah. embedded in the wall. Yeah, and so maybe the movements of his fighting style are not so clearly monkey style mm-hmm. as flying monkeys are. Yeah. But nonetheless, the way he goes about fighting with these constant surprises left and right. right. But we also see he's got clearly a lot of power because his majestic spear that he fights with like it's a twig yeah. has to be carried on screen by four <laughs> different guys. Yeah. And on on the subject of that, I think it's really cool that Wing Chun is equally capable of lifting the yes. spear. Maybe she cannot do it quite as fast as he can, but like 80 or 90% as fast. Yeah. And that's nothing to slouch at. Yeah. When absolutely. four guys have to lift this thing, you know. I mean, she tosses it back up at him when he's standing on top of a wall. Yeah. With one hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, yeah. She, she can use this. Yeah, for sure. Um, and of course, we see examples of her strength earlier in the movie as well. Mm-hmm. She carries this gigantic basket that the scholar just cannot even physically lift yeah all sorts of moments like that oh and the fight between wing chun and flying chimp the first time whenever he escapes he throws a grinding stone at her yeah and she pretty effortlessly parries it to go destroy a bench or something in the background we also see uh whenever there was a moment in that first and i think that same fight when flying chimp comes at 
uh, Wing Chun with this sort of barrage and she parries it all. But then she sort of shakes her hands like, oh man, that really, really hurt. In a way that like, you know, hiding it from Flying Chimp, she was not going to show him her vulnerability in that moment. Yeah, well, and you know, that's a character moment for her too because mm-hmm. she's standing really erect and she she puts her hands behind her back. Yeah. And it's almost as if she's playing it cool. Yeah. But then it shows you behind her back and her fingers are just like twitching. And yeah. And she's trying to work them out because... It's tough countering his blows. And meanwhile, uh, she lands a blow on Flying Chimp and he just brushes it off his shirt. No problem. No problem whatsoever. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so we see that Chimpanzee, Flying Chimp, is this sort of unflappable foe. Mm -hmm. Um, Also very similar to Master of the Flying Guillotine. The master, the eponymous master... They he becomes a horror movie villain basically, mm, and mm-hmm. they they have to do so much to break down his defenses. Yeah, he's got so many phases of of his hit points or whatever you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, and so to sum up, we can see throughout the movie a character will exhibit a character trait, mm-hmm. and then they will reinforce that through combat. Right, or in some cases, we'll see something happen in a fight. And then later on, we'll see that reaffirmed in a character choice that they make. Yeah. This is not the easiest thing to represent in a game because so often players are limited by their knowledge. There are few people in the world who are improv ready with fighting style and character. Yeah. Probably very few people who are that (laughs) ready for that sort of thing. Yeah. But seeing how it can be applied in this movie, I think there are a lot of ways that we can work toward a game that helps players to kind of make character and their fighting style this mutually beneficial cycle that feeds into each other constantly. Yeah. And of course, the the more solid uh, an idea you have for a character, you can choose whatever abilities or techniques or feats or whatever it is that the game can support that concept in order to create something a little more uh, a little more tangible mm-hmm. um, upon narration. Absolutely, yeah. And I know you have experience in stage choreography. Yeah. So when you build a fight between characters, you know, you start off with words on a page and maybe it'll say they fight. Yeah. Maybe it'll say they fight across the stage back and forth nobody's really sure Mm -hmm. it depends on the playwright but when it comes time for you to choreograph a fight and advance this story through violence what's your process how do you how do you go about doing that uh well one of the things first of all we stage directions can help they can also hurt it sort of depends on the playwright's understanding of violence yeah and so we don't always feel beholden to whatever stage directions are given. Really, we try to read the text carefully and figure out what is the story that we're trying to tell in that particular fight. Are we trying to reveal certain things about each character in general or perhaps in the situation? Is there something specific we need to tell in order to advance the story? And then we'll choreograph around that. So we sort of we start off with what we call a hook, uh, the hook that we hang this fight on, this sort of concept that informs what the fight is about and what we need to accomplish with this fight. Would it be uh, analogous to like a goal or something for the fight? It could be. It could be a goal. Sometimes it's a goal. Sometimes it's, um, you know, we need to say that this character is afraid and outclassed. Or perhaps it's just as, as simple as this character is fighting with this weapon and th- or as this character is fighting with this other weapon. And we are interested in exploring the differences between the two weapons and how they play together. It can be anything. It really depends on what that scene needs at the time. So oftentimes in role-playing games, when combat occurs, it occurs because the players need experience points. Yeah. Or it occurs because 
something exciting has got to happen in this session, you know? Yeah. Or yeah. the villain is villain or villains are an obstacle that the players need to get through to, to get to a goal or something. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's, it's actually fairly rare. I think in the role-playing game world, when you see this sort of decision, like in, in stage choreography where it's like, okay, what do we want to accomplish in this fight? Right. Beyond defeating an enemy and becoming a little more powerful, what narrative goals do we have for this fight? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are very few systems that pursue that line of, of, yeah. of storytelling. It can also depend on the game master. I mean, the game master might have something specific that needs to be accomplished in that fight. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the guardian of whatever it is that you need to get for whatever it is that you're trying to do. Right. Or uh, this is a, like a nemesis that one of the characters has that they need to get past or, or defeat. Uh, with the help of the party at this point. So, I mean, I think a lot of that might fall on the on the game master if the game master chooses to or has the ability to uh, to arrange the fight in a very specific narrative way. Absolutely, I, I agree. And the the bummer of that, of course, is that not all game masters are created equal. Uh, right, yeah. And, and they all have different strengths and some of them yeah. are, are a little better with the violent side of things and some of them are a little better with the narrative side of things. Absolutely. And one of the things that Eric and I really want to do when we're developing this game is to create some really robust but elegant tools for game masters to fill in the gaps in their knowledge, whatever they happen to be, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think this movie makes a particularly good case study when we analyze it in terms of fighting styles and that sort of thing. But there are a lot of other gameable ideas, I think, that we can pull from this movie, too. One of the things that you pointed out to me that I thought was particularly brilliant is this idea of adapting myth and legend. We already went over the myth of Wing Chun and how the movie is invoking a lot of those beats from from the various myths in one way or another um instead of a warlord it's a bandit captain but he still wants wing chun for his bride and challenges her accordingly you know Mm -hmm. but one of the things that you pointed out that was really cool is this idea that flying monkey and flying chimpanzee together might be invoking the monkey king Mm -hmm. uh, sun wukong i really love that idea do you want to do you want to tease that out a little bit uh yeah i i mean it really came to me because because I was trying to look at flying chimpanzee's style, and again, not really seeing anything definitively, or very much that is definitively monkey style about it. And yet, his, he's called flying chimpanzee, but he does have that majestic spear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did a little bit of like Google research, and I've seen the Monkey King portrayed with a staff, and I didn't, I wasn't sure if that was canon, but it, in fact, it is. The Monkey King is known to carry not just any staff, but a staff that apparently weighed something like eight tons mm-hmm. um, you know he's he's a powerful mythological creature practically a god and it just seemed like that suggested to me the flying chimpanzee's use of that spear really sort of brought that home to me yeah and i mean you know the monkey king spear also has this ability to change shape and mm-hmm. size it can it can be as tall as a mountain or as tiny as a toothpick that he can tuck behind his ear or whatever. yeah yeah and that level of the supernatural is beyond the scope of this movie right but uh, I totally agree. You know, a big heavy spear that only he can wield and he wields with ferocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely invoking Monkey King tropes for days, I think. Yeah. I um, think so. And similarly, Flying Monkey, while he's kind of a weaker, more sniveling kind of character, this mischievousness mm-hmm. is very much in keeping with the Monkey King myth. The whole point of Journey to the West is that he's sort of on a redemption arc. Yeah. He's got this uh, crown that constantly restricts his head and yeah. puts him in pain so that he doesn't get... It's like a shock collar for yeah, a dog or something, much, you know? Yeah. Because he wreaked all kinds of havoc. He goes up to the the celestial court or whatever where all the gods are hanging out and he eats all their peaches that, that make mm-hmm. them immortal. 
And that's how he gets a lot of his power. But it's also like, oh, well, you really screwed the gods over for a little while. You know, you pointed out, too, that the arc of both of those bandits and the bandit group in general is sort of in keeping with the Monkey King myth as well. Do you want to go into detail about that? Uh, Yeah, just uh, just the fact that the Journey of the West was uh, Sun Wukong's redemption arc, as you say, at the end of which he attained, I believe, Buddhahood, essentially. Mm -hmm. And whereas the bandits and Flying Monkey and Flying Chimpanzee, I mean, they start off as villains, as, you know, not terrible villains really they're you know they're certainly worse villains in in the wuxia genre but they they're they are mischievous they have some very bad aspects of the characters certainly but in the end they are redeemed by wing chun who redeems them essentially by basically becoming the alpha mm-hmm. <laughs> uh she tames them she tames flying chimpanzee and by taming flying chimpanzee tames flying monkey and the rest of the bandit crew and she i think in that moment sort of being trained by uh, shaolin nun might be at least relationship wise sort of the, the this movie's equivalent of buddha as buddha tamed sun wukong yeah yeah it's a, it's a keen observation and it's cool to see how you can maybe take a myth and break it apart and reassemble it in a different way and still mm-hmm. invoke the spirit of that thing to tell a much more grounded and realistic martial arts story. Right. Even though we've still got, you know, chi powers and that sort of thing in this movie. Yeah. It's not jumping to the ends of the world and, and eating the god's peaches and that sort of <laughs> stuff. Another thing that I think is really interesting about this movie, and it's sort of the same thing as, like I mentioned, Return to 36 Chamber, the fight ends and the the main character is like okay well be nice now and then the other guys are like yeah sure we will and there's no <laughs> there's not really a question that that's going to happen yeah so in the same way that you know at the end of 36 chamber and at the end of wing chun here the victors make a demand and it's unquestionably followed mm-hmm. in this movie we have two examples of what i would call a one-sided challenge the first time is when Flying Chimpanzee steals Charm, and he tells Wing Chun, we'll fight tomorrow if you want Charm back. And she never responds. Yeah. Uh, and in that situation, she's kind of in a bind. She she has to show up if she wants to rescue someone. But then after that fight where she does rescue Charm, Flying Chimp again says, okay, well, here's another challenge. We'll meet again in three days and we'll fight again. Yeah. And if you lose, then you marry me. Yeah. And the interesting thing to me here is that, again, she doesn't even respond. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of assumed that she's going to answer the challenge. It's almost as if to deny this challenge would be unthinkable. Mm-hmm. It would be so easy for her to just not show up to that fight. It's not like they can get married without her there. Yeah. If she just doesn't show up, problem solved. And she's got charm. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like she has everything she needs and nothing she doesn't. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the honor of the situation, you know, the propriety right. of the situation. This is a challenge and she's a martial artist. She has to honor that. Yep. And yep. it's so fundamental that she doesn't even need to respond and agree to the challenge. It's just like, well, of course I'm going to do that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And in fact, she goes so far as to say, I need to see my teacher because of course she's going to answer this challenge, but it's going to be a tough one and yeah. she needs a little help. Yeah. 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 That's, that's her reaction. It's not, okay, I agree. It's, oh man, I got to go find my my mistress. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this idea that like, you know, in in a traditional role-playing game, if uh, an NPC tries to affect you, you can usually make a saving throw against it or something to avoid that thing from happening for you. But I love this idea that when it comes to setting up a fight Mm -hmm. or when it comes to doing something that's fundamental to the life of a warrior, there's no save. 
you if you are told to do something, you have no choice but to do it. <laughs> yep. And, yeah. And your drama comes from deciding what you're going to do to rise to that challenge, not yes. whether or not you will rise to that challenge. Mm-hmm. This is another interesting idea. I mentioned to you this idea of scale boosters, you know, the the dirt in the eyes and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Is it the case that these scale boosters, especially the underhanded ones, are maybe most effective if it's a rookie who's doing it? The Green Destiny, no matter who Mm -hmm. picks that up, they're amazing. Yeah. But dirt in the eyes, it's kind of hard to imagine Li Mu Bai throwing dirt in somebody's eyes. He wouldn't do it, but I think even if he tried, it would be a thing that would actually lower his standing rather than raise it. Yes. Because he's built up to be this superhuman character, you mm-hmm. know? It sort of reminds me of the one-sided challenge, actually, in a way, where, like you say, if Li Mu Bai uh, stooped to that level, he would cease to be Li Mu Bai. He would cease to be of that station. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not even a question. It's not like he's... The propriety is so rigid and so such a powerful force in this society that it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable for someone to stoop that low unless they're of a station that they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe the only reason why Flying Monkey's Dirt in the Eyes trick works is because we've learned at this point that he's actually not the head honcho. Mm-hmm. Flying Chimpanzee is above him. Yeah. And this guy's got something to prove all of a sudden. And we even find out that Pakto is of a higher skill level than Flying Monkey. Flying Monkey really needs this scale booster to be able to contend at all. Yeah. Um, he's earned the right to use it in a way by being of such a lowly station. And so maybe it's the case, you know, we, we've, we've sort of been using the term chambers to substitute for levels in our conversation so sure. far. And so maybe it's the case that, like, you know, certain scale boosters are tied to your chamber. You can only use them until you get so high and then they, they have the opposite effect or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, but that's all we have for gameable ideas, so we can move on to stealing as art. The question that I have for this section, this is a little bit different than our usual format, but the question that I have is, do more mechanics make fighting styles easier for the player? We talked earlier about, from the GM perspective, mm-hmm. what happens when you don't have mechanics that will help you to blend fighting style and narrative. You might have a strength in one or the other, but if you if you have a weakness in one or the other, then how do you make up for that? Sure. And similarly, I think, you know, like we said, very few players are at an improv level with fighting style rhetoric they just they Mm -hmm. just can't do it very few martial artists are at that level (laughs) (laughs) and so i have this notion that maybe to a certain extent more mechanics is better for a player to help structure a really complex and and, and visually stunning quote-unquote kind of fight right I think on one end of the spectrum, we've got Dungeons and Dragons, the, the classic, you know, uh, that's that's one approach to fighting styles. You are a fighter. And mm-hmm. especially in fifth edition, you can have a specialty. You have a, a fighting style. Yeah. Uh, same is true for the monk. Same is true for the paladin, mm-hmm. uh, the ranger. All these characters have explicit mechanics that you can invoke. And it's like your little superpower. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and that informs how you go about the business of mechanical fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think feng shui is another pretty great example. It's got the shticks that are unique to each archetype, but there's a lot of overlap between them. And so with your archetype and then with your ability to sort of freely chart your course through the different shticks, 
you can develop your own fighting style and you can be a heavier hitter or you can be a faster, more agile kind of fighter. Yeah. Um, you can be a weapon specialist. You can be an unarmed specialist. And, and all of these are opportunities to be guided toward thrilling combats. Um, but I think both Dungeons and Dragons and Feng Shui have a tendency to get bogged down, especially for new players. Mm-hmm. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is fairly simple. You roll one d20 and you add a number to it or whatever. And especially in recent years, they've done a lot to try and streamline that. Yeah. But we still have this this kind of slog. You know, if you get into a fight in fifth edition, it's probably going to take you an hour if there are a reasonable number of challenges in front of you. Yeah. Um, whereas much more rules light games, uh, you know, Blades in the Dark is is a game that I've been playing a lot lately. And most of the time when you're fighting one character, that fight is resolved with a single roll. And that's mm. so much faster than Dungeons and Dragons. You're <laughs> oh, yeah. trying to whittle away their hit points or whatever. And so I think, you know, like I said, there's a point where you start to get diminishing returns. You don't want to bog people down in these mechanics, but you also don't want to give them so little that they have nothing to work with. Right. Um, I think an example of that, giving them not quite enough to work with, is Swords Without Master. Swords Without Master, it's a wonderful game. Um, it's a rules-light game, too. Basically, you roll two D6s of two different colors. Mm-hmm. Whichever one is higher will determine what the tone of that scene is. And you have two cho- tones to choose from, glum or jovial. And so you tell this very story gamey kind of narrative-focused sword and sorcery adventure... And the game master, called the overplayer, rolls the mm. dice to determine the overtone, whether the overtone is glum or jovial. Okay. And then each character, when they have their chance to act, roll for themselves. And they determine if they if their personal character actions are subverting that overtone. Maybe the overtone is glum and their character rolls, jo- rolls jovial. Okay. So in the midst of this overall glum atmosphere, they're, they're vivacious and vibrant and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're glum themselves, and they sort of reinforce the tone of the scene. Okay. And that's great for crafting a narrative. Yeah. But it does nothing to tell you, you know, oh, right now I could do uh, a a high kick followed up by an elbow and then do a throw to the ground and that sort of thing. That's based entirely on your own imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think while narratively Swords Without Master is a wonderful system for emulating swords and sorcery and just about any other genre if you can tweak the the tones well enough yeah it really doesn't help a player to visualize what a fight looks like and that's not its intent that's not its purpose yeah but it is an example of going too far in the other direction mm-hmm. um before we started recording I told you a little about masks though this uh this superhero uh powered by the apocalypse game and I think it's got a pretty interesting middle ground maybe not in terms of helping a character really know what fighting techniques they want to use in a fight Mm -hmm. but at the very least it's interesting because instead of you beating somebody up and chipping away their hit points you're inflicting status effects on them Mm -hmm. you're making them uncertain you're making them uh scared you're making them winded you're making them all these different qualities and then those build up and eventually they can't do anything anymore right um and like you pointed out, we really see this in the last fight. Yeah. With yeah. Uh, Flying Chimpanzee and, and Wing Chun. Mm-hmm. She humiliates him. And he's not physically hurt all that much, but it, totally demoralized. Oh, yeah. He's <laughs> lost his will to fight. Yeah. yeah. He has no choice but to admit, you're better than me. Yeah. I'm sorry. And you I've know. seen this happen in um, martial arts bouts, too, where one person is just... 
uh, the particular instance that I remember is uh, one person was just uh, could not be hit. Mm-hmm. Like for whatever reason, he was able to parry everything uh, or, or dodge everything, and it just it, it took all it sapped all the fight out of his opponent. Yeah, and, and <laughs> like, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, it's the same sort of situation when you're in the dojo, and and it's a it's a sensei versus a student. Oh you know? yeah. Like when I was in high school and I was doing a lot of martial arts, I would always spar my senseis because. Of course, why would you pass that opportunity up? Yeah. But it wasn't about trying to do better than them. It, it was about like taking the licks yeah. and learning your lessons, you yeah. know. And in that context, it's a positive and kind of self or well, not self-affirming, but at least educational. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this movie, it was clearly demoralizing. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that can be modeled really well with a masks-like system where instead of mm-hmm. I do 12 damage, it's like, no, now you're uncertain. And that also gives a lot of uh, narrative flavor for describing what a character is, is what the act- what actions a character is performing, and what effects they have, which I think is really really cool. Like there are different ways to wind a person, mm-hmm. uh, or to humiliate them, mm-hmm. or to um, just take all the fight out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it gives the players an, a, a little bit to go off of in order to. Uh, visualize and communicate what their characters are, try- are trying to accomplish. Absolutely, yeah. And, and moving away from masks, um, there are two basic directions you can approach this from. You know, mm-hmm. either you say, "I want to make this person winded," mm. and I'm going to do this action to try and make that person winded, and then let's roll to see if I succeed. Mm. Or yeah. you say, "I'm attacking this person. I roll to see if I succeed. Which status effect do I want to inflict on them?" Sure. You, you can do it either way, mm-hmm. and I think. Especially if you do it the first way, where you say, I have a goal. I want to affect this person in this way. Yeah. It can make it a lot easier for you to visualize what you're trying to do. So the last game I want to talk about a little bit is Steamscapes Asia, which you mentioned that you did some playtesting for. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty good friends with Eric Simon in real life, and uh, I've talked to him a little bit about Steamscapes, particularly when I was working on my own Mm. Savage Worlds fight-heavy setting, the Blackwood. And I asked him, you know, how did you develop the fighting styles in the mechanics, but also just from a narrative perspective. And he said that you had a fairly large hand in helping him to zero in on historical styles and how they should be represented by game mechanics and that sort of thing. So, like, what was your experience playtesting Steamscapes Asia? And and are there maybe one or two different style examples that you helped to craft or, or give suggestions about that sort of thing? Yeah, I really enjoyed the Steamscapes Asia uh, setting and rule set. Uh, I remember when we did the playtest, I played a Muay Thai stylist, which was a lot of fun. I think with Eric's recommendation, because we had met before and had chatted a little bit about what the various styles can do and what their strengths were, and Muay Thai was really, really effective. So I just really wanted to see what this was about. If I remember correctly, and it's been a little while since I played the game, uh, you could choose a style, and the style came with uh, different techniques that it could do. And some of those techniques could be sort of mixed into other styles as well. Each style had its own unique combination of a sort of wider set of techniques. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of reminds me, actually, of Shadowrun fighting styles. Um, okay, I'm not familiar with Shadowrun at all, so uh, yeah. this is something you can teach me. <laughs> okay, uh, well, it, it, in terms of how choosing a style gives you a set of techniques, and those techniques are sort of 
that the combination is unique to the style, but the techniques are accessible by across various styles. Okay, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think I think feng shui actually ha- handles it in a similar way. Yeah. And I think I remember from Steamscapes, I've only played a one-shot, so I didn't get to progress the character very much. Right, me neither. But there was still a little bit of a branching path situation in Steamscapes Asia. I, yeah. I, I know my character that I played was, I can't remember the name of the fighting style, but it was based on the uh, Sikh culture oh, fighting okay. style. okay. Eric definitely did some serious research into a variety of fighting styles, because I looked at his list of styles and it was just like i had not i've never heard of that yeah I've never heard of that <laughs> yeah and oh that's some great insight as to that style yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well and that's the cool, cool thing a, a well-designed fighting style game system mm-hmm. can be educational to a certain extent it can yeah. at least point you in the right direction to do some additional research right it's it's really cool to see how fighting styles can be represented and exemplified in these various systems mm-hmm one thing I really liked about the Steamscapes Asia setting was how the fighting styles, they gave you a lot to work with. And it was there were, there were a number of options that you, that you had, uh, but the, the way you resolve combat was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had not played D&D 5th Ed yet. I've only started playing that recently. And yes, that's much more streamlined than what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I started with second ed, but I really hit my heyday with like three, three point five. Yeah, um, I was and, the same way. That's yeah. when I got into gaming. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I love, I love that system. I love those rules, but they can be quite complex. And yeah, there's a lot to them. Right, but yeah, I think fifth edition, like you said, it has a, a really streamlined approach to that sort of thing with the different sub specialties or whatever per class, mm-hmm. without getting too in the weeds about all the different. Endless options that you could create for yourself. Yeah. But ultimately, like the game mechanics of combat resolution for Steamscapes was, went pretty quickly. It was, mm-hmm. it was relatively simple. Yeah. Um, which was nice because, yeah, you could definitely have all these options, but combat itself wasn't necessarily a, a slog. Right, so, right. Which and, nice. you know, that's, that's partly uh, due to the nature of Savage Worlds. It's, it's a system that is crunchy and was intended to be crunchy. Yeah. But the ideal was for the crunch to be resolved fairly quickly. Yeah, and it works. It yeah. works really well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my favorite systems. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So that, that covers a lot of gaming ideas, both generally inspired by the movie and specifically drawn from different uh, game systems. And so uh, what we will do now is move into the comment section. Uh, this is a part of our show where you know people write into us and we have a chance to respond to them. Um, some of this may be... You know, you might not have a lot of context for this, but sure. if you have any insight, please feel free to jump in. Great. Um, so this first comment is from the Misdirected Mark page, where you can leave a comment on our uh, on our episodes that we post there. This is from Brendan Davis, and it's a little bit of an ongoing conversation inspired by our episode where we talked about what's not great about Wuxia, and we were hungry for examples of representation in the genre. So Brendan says, you might want to check out Swordsman 2, which has a trans woman character. Yep. Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan, which has Mm. lesbian characters. Movies with Bridget Lin are generally good. I love her movies. I'm not familiar with her at all. Um, I mean, she, uh, she was in, she was the bride with white hair. Oh, okay. That's one that I haven't seen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. Cool. Um, for strong female leads, you might want to also look into Su Feng especially her role in Touch of Zen, Polly Kwan movies, Angela Mao films, and movies like 14 Amazons, and many others with Ivy Ling Po, like Finger of Doom, and the Red Lotus Trilogy. 
The Fate of Lee Khan, also by King Hu, is pretty interesting because it features a number of female characters. Lao Kar Lung does a pretty good job of balancing male and female characters. Um, Kara Hui has a lot of impressive roles in his films. Also, lots of ensemble films like the Brave Archer series have female characters as co-stars or in the mix. And uh, Brendan kind of obliquely points out that a lot of the movies that we've watched so far have had male characters, but that doesn't mm. necessarily mean that the genre has a dearth of female protagonists. Yeah, um, There's clearly a lot that we are going to add to our movie list now because that's pretty exciting. Um, and especially after Wing Chun, I really got the taste for... I mean, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is maybe the best wuxia movie, and it has yeah. some wonderful and complex representation in terms of female characters. Absolutely. But Wing Chun is maybe second best, in my opinion, in terms of presenting women who are products of their culture, but they are also subtly working against it. Mm-hmm. And they're supporting each other outside of the content or outside of the presence of men. I guess the women character characters in this movie are always kind of talking about men one way or another, whether it's complaining that the men are keeping them down or complaining that they can't find a husband or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I still really appreciate the dynamic between them and the way that they support each other and challenge each other and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, you know, I'm excited to see more examples of that sort of thing in the genre. And uh, thanks so much, Brendan, for giving us that big list of movies to watch. Next comes from Kyle Dunbar, also from the misdirected Mark Page. He says, During the stealing as art segment, when you're talking about raising scale to a level that has huge consequences or even death, Reminds me of the move Stop Holding Back in the RPG City of Mist, which is also a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Mm. This move represents a character using their powers on a level that has never been used before to overcome an obstacle, with different outcomes depending on the stakes. At the lowest stakes, they could lose their powers for a few scenes, but at very high stakes, the characters could die, be destroyed, or changed forever. Hmm. Then he goes on to say, great show, always interesting, even to someone like me who has zero experience to martial arts or Jung-Hoo media. And then he ends with, also, when it comes to games that have different optional rules depending on the slight difference in themes and style of a specific genre, a good example would be Knight's Black Agents. The book is filled with optional rules for you to use depending on the style of espionage thriller you want as well as the style of vampire that appears in your specific game. This is a reference to you talking about how some mechanics may need to differ between a tragic versus heroic game, etc. So first, Kyle, thanks so much for writing in. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And um, yeah, I I have played City of Mist exactly once, and I forgot that Stop Holding Back is a move in that game, but I think it is ripped straight from the pages of a Wuxia novel. (laughs) There's so much in in the genre about you know, pushing beyond your limits to oh, break yeah. through and, and rise to the challenge, that sort of thing. Or holding back reserves. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like we said earlier, there's this idea that if you're fighting a character of a lower scale, you win no problem. Yeah. If you're fighting a character of a higher scale, you have to make major sacrifices to be able to go toe-to-toe with them. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks again, Kyle. Next on our list is uh, from our Patreon page. One of our backers, Dave, says, I find it interesting that you guys regularly include kung fu movies, which in my mind are a completely separate genre from wuxia films, granting a significant trope overlap. It's kind of a know-it-when-I-see-it kind of thing, but I freely admit my personal mental shorthand is, quote, obvious wirework, probably wuxia. 
which of course completely ignores the social and historical context of the genre. This is not a complaint or a request for change. I like both, and it's interesting hearing you guys approach them both through the wuxia lens, so carry on. Uh, and then he says, also cue everyone in the universe telling me why I'm wrong. <laughs> it's okay, I can take it, and the explanation is probably also interesting. So he lists a bunch of other examples of what he thinks would fall into kung fu category mm. versus what would fall into wuxia. So for example... The presence of monks, probably Kung Fu. The presence of nobles, probably Wuxia. Everyone has weapons, probably Wuxia. Eagle Claw versus Tiger Fist, probably Kung Fu. The Wu Lin, obviously Wuxia. Training sequences, <laughs> usually Kung Fu. Love Triangle, Wuxia. Single-minded revenge, Kung Fu. <laughs> and then he clarifies also that Wuxia has revenge, but it's always complicated. He concludes with, that's off the top of my head. Obviously, there are exceptions. And also, obviously, this is just my personal opinions and observations based on a very limited and shallow understanding of the genre. So, Vic, you were telling me that in college, your major exposure to the genre. Yeah. And it was researching a kung fu action scene that you were putting together for a class. Yeah, it's actually some friends of mine wanted to put on a kung fu skit for the Chinese undergraduate students because the Chinese Undergraduate Students Association would hold a Chinese New Year show every year and they wanted to put on a, a Kung Fu act. Uh, and we were all martial artists, but no, not stage combatants. Mm -hmm. We had, didn't have the slightest idea about stage combat other than we figured, oh, we could probably wing it. Right. Or figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we watched all kinds of martial arts Kung Fu movies uh, for ideas, uh, ideas for moves to do, stunts to pull, uh, humor, mm -hmm. um, techniques, if we can, you know, uh, tease them out. Uh, and it was definitely a trial and error mm -hmm. uh, sort of process. Yeah. That's interesting. So my original exposure to martial arts was as an actual martial arts student. Yeah. And then I went on to do stage combat as well. Mm. Martial arts choreography versus stage combat choreography is very different in practice. So it can be tough to adapt. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, what do you think? So you did you did some research into some kung fu movies. You were familiar with some of the things Brendan Davis was mentioning. Mm -hmm. This distinction between kung fu and wuxia, I think it's there, but I don't know. I don't know exactly how to define it. I think right. What we've established so far about wuxia is that it is very societal or cultural. Yeah, yeah. There are almost always themes of inequality, mm -hmm. and that's what creates the conditions necessary for all these warriors roaming about. Mm -hmm. My gut tells me that with just a straight kung fu movie, you probably don't see that in the forefront as much, but, sure. but what do you think? I have to say that I, I wasn't even familiar with the term wuxia until uh, quite a bit later in life. Okay. So I was not one to m make those distinctions, uh, especially because I... I watched a lot of these movies definitely for the entertainment uh but also f just to you know look at what sort of moves i could crib mm -hmm. <laughs> from yeah. them so my focus was elsewhere i have to admit sure well and you know so um i'm thinking about this idea of just the straight kung fu genre and, mm -hmm. and the movies that keep coming to mind are bruce lee movies which yeah. weren't historical and they were much more about the culture of martial arts in the time that he was alive and maybe yes. just before then. Yeah. And it wasn't so much like, you know, you had these larger than life heroes who were going off and fighting the man yeah. or going off and saving the world from bandits. Mm -hmm. They were in a glorified pissing contest with each other and they were trying to figure out who was the better of the two of them. Yeah. And it was a strictly kind of personal thing like that. Yeah. And maybe that's 
along the lines. I think also about, you know, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. That's not specifically Kung Fu. Right. But, but the are. same sort of machismo and competition yeah. is a little more in the fore than the societal implications of a proper wuxia story. Yeah. Yes. Um, so maybe that's the distinction. I mean, it, it's a really interesting thing that you point out there, Dave, and I'm mm-hmm. glad you did it. It's good food for thought for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's our episode. I, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me, Vic. Oh, it's, thank it's been you for good having to, me. It was yeah. a lot of fun. It's been good to talk choreography with you a little bit yeah. and uh, see what kind of character stuff we can we can figure out. Yeah, I think so. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came on. And uh, do you want to take us out? Sure. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. And remember to make your Kung Fu stronger. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or on his website, MythicGazetteer.com. You can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, DogPoweredVehicle.com. You can reach both of us at Hustle on Twitter or Hustle at gmail.com or on the Misdirected Mark website. Thanks for listening.